a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I may have mentioned this once or twice, but did you know that uh, this is National Adoption Month? This is becoming one of my favorite segments. I'm happy to welcome Tammy Brinkerhoff back to the program as we observe Adoption Month. Tammy, good to have you here. Good morning. Thank you. And I see that you have brought a special guest. Would you introduce her to us? You betcha. This is my new friend, Tricia. She is, um, wow, she is quite a package. She is an adoptee. She's a birth mom to two children plus a single mom to two others. She's reunited with her her biological family and her adoptive children. And I'm just excited for you guys to get to know her. Wow, I I have so many questions. Tricia, <laughs> welcome. It's it's so good to have you on the program. Um, talk to me just a little bit about, uh, first of all, let's talk about you uh, as an adoptee. Um, Tell me about your experience. Did you grow up knowing that you were adopted? Was it something you found out about later in life? No, I always knew I was adopted. My parents always told me from day one, so it was never a secret. Um, it was a close adoption. I was born back in 78, so adoptions back then were very closed and very, you know, you didn't know anything but identifying information or non-identifying. So um, I always had questions I always like wondered who my birth mom was and I wondered all the, the normal questions. Did she hold me? Did she love me? Did she want me? Did she, did she like kiss me or sing to me? You know, I just, I had all these questions and finally after like years of searching, like I went to LDS family services like two or three times asking if there's, any signed consent forms to find her and there was never anything and they just kept sending me the non-identifying information um, which was very frustrating very frustrating but but you finally, ultimately, uh, ultimately you succeeded though in in, in finding your, your biological did. mom i did i i contacted uh, oh the locator that show that used to be on tlc I contacted them and a search angel contacted me and they asked me if I still wanted to find her. And I said, of course I do. And they, um, they found her pretty quick because of her genealogy. Um, Tell us a little bit about what that was like. It was um, nerve wracking because I wasn't sure if she wanted me to know because I didn't know if her family knew because I didn't know if I was like a secret or if nobody knew about me or, you know, I just didn't know the circumstances and I didn't want to be rejected. Um, but I was also excited to get those answers that I always had. I had questions too. So, so how did, how did that first meeting go? I mean, how, how did you, first of all, how did you contact her? Uh, <laughs> The search angel contacted her first, and it was through Facebook. <laughs> um, that's how how she found her. Um, we met at the Mesa Temple um, for the first time, and it was a really good feeling to have her hug me for the first time and 
to tell me that she loved me and to feel that she gave me a kiss on my cheek. And it was just an awesome feeling to finally like have that full circle connection finally after 30 something years. Cause we've been reunited for about 12 now. Wow. How yeah. powerful. Tell us a little bit about your experience as, as a, as a biological mom who gave two children up for adoption. It's been very, um, it's, it's one of the hardest things I've done. Um, my first child actually is my brother. My parents adopted him. So that's been, it's been weird, especially as he's gone through his major life's um, milestones. Um, and then my birth daughter, um, I placed from day one. She lives with um, a couple in Idaho, and she's doing really amazing. Um, as far as my feelings towards being a birth mom and an adoptee, it's very bipolar. Like, I respect them as adoptees and their boundaries, but as a birth mom, I also feel the, the want and the desire to know them more than what they're willing to, what, to give to me. So it's very bipolar because I, I do understand. I do. I get it. I get it more than they, I think they think they, that I do. So are, are you in contact? I guess it was the adoption of your birth daughter more open um, than, than your own, you know, adoption where the records were sealed and, you know, people just didn't talk about it. Did, did yeah. you have more information available? I did. I was able to pick out the couple. Um, I met them before I gave birth. Um, it was like right in the middle, right in the beginning of when the adoption started opening up to um, open adoptions. So I started out with semi-open, which we didn't know where we lived. We, we corresponded through the agency for years, and then they opened it up to open, completely open. Um, so I've always known where she is. I've always had contact. I've always known how she is. Um, but as far as like visits, I didn't see her till she was 12. So 12 years went by and I just saw her in pictures, heard about her in letters. So Wow. And Tammy, I, I don't want to take away from you. If you have, if you have some questions, um, please feel free to ask. I think you guys are doing a great job. You have such insightful questions and it's so fun to hear Trisha's story because I have my own that I'm relating all this to. So keep going. Trisha, I want to ask um, for, for the people who are listening, and, and this could include, you know, any number of different backgrounds. If there was one takeaway or one message that you would ask them to take with them from this conversation we're having, what would you want them to know about adoption from the perspective of both an adoptee as well as, uh, as a mother who gave children up for adoption? I think my biggest takeaway is adoption is a never-ending cycle of change. There's change in communication. There's change in relationships. There's, I always want to say, be as open in your communication as possible. Be as open and um, firm with your boundaries as possible. So nobody has a chance to misinterpret anything because that's when feelings get hurt. And adoption is not for the faint of heart. 
If you're not ready to be 100% honest and communicate, then you're not ready for adoption. Because, uh, I mean, honesty is is big. Yeah, it's, you know, I've, I, again, I, I'm, I'm an adoptee as well. And, uh, and, and uh, so I, this is all ringing very, very true to me. Um, what's, what's the most positive aspect that, uh, that you have found uh, about adoption? If, if there was, if someone was like, well, I just don't know if it's, if it's something to consider, what would you tell them? I, as an adoptee, am so grateful to my birth mom for giving me a stable home giving me a both a mother and a father um if she had kept me i wouldn't have had a father um so giving me that i am grateful giving that to my children that i placed for adoption was key um my birth father's my daughter's birth father was not a good person so i had i wanted to and i felt the need to get her to safety and I did that. I protected her. And I gave her a mother and a father and a stable home. And she's had a wonderful life. She is such an amazing person. And she wouldn't be the person she is if I hadn't placed her for adoption. So, like, I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I would agree. Tammy, we've got just about a minute left. Any thoughts that you would like to add to, to our conversation? I think that it's great that we're sharing all of this information so people have a really good, solid idea of what adoption's about, where it's not just, oh, I got a baby or, oh, I placed a baby. It's like everybody's lives forever, and it's so important to for adoptees to know that they have two families that love them, just like you guys do. It's so important for the adoptive families to know that the birth moms love them, and it's so important for the birth moms to know that the families love them. Like the love that I have for my children's birth parents, I can't even describe it. So I just want everyone to know that it's a win-win all around, and I know I've said this before, but it blesses everyone involved. It gives everybody the opportunity to learn and grow and become more and Trisha and I were talking right before we started the show, and I'm just so impressed with the richness of her. Okay, unfortunately, we're up against the clock here. Trisha, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Tammy, thank you again. Uh, we've got one more segment, though, coming up next week, right? That's right. We'll have some really good information next week. All right, thanks again, and uh, looking forward to another segment during National Adoption Month. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to recognize GarageDoorProServices.com as one of my fine sponsors. And by fine sponsors, I mean these are some of the people who help to keep me on the air allowing me to daily spend my time searching for the best information that I can then pass along to you in my audience. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a pretty cool deal. I look, I, I know it's some people look, you just talk about stuff and you're a grifter for doing this, but I know the truth matters to a lot of people. And so when I tell you garage door pros is committed to truth, they are committed to 
getting information out there that, that's worth considering. Okay, you don't have to accept it, but it, uh, it can add some depth or some dimension to what's going on. And let's face it, we're kind of locked in a struggle for, uh, for staying tethered to reality. So if you appreciate hearing the messages that I share on this program on a day-to-day basis, please consider doing business with garagedoorproservices.com, especially if you live in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, or Colorado City, Arizona. So let's talk about fact-checking. Let's talk about that attempt to stay tethered to reality. Not an easy thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be ironic here. What's the headline I just saw? Uh, oh, San Francisco launches transgender guaranteed income program. Now, you're probably not surprised, right? The Bay Area, that's a pretty progressive area. So maybe it figures that, yes, you know, we'll pay you $1,200 a month if you uh, would like to receive assistance as a low-income transgender. But I was reading an article earlier this morning. You know how many different genders you can choose from? 97. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just, you know, using that number for dramatic effect. 97 different genders. And it kind of makes you wonder. If, if, if we're expected to believe that, uh, you know, uh, traditional male and female, well, that's, uh, that's so a few years ago. Now we know about 97 genders. It makes you wonder, why, why do we have so many fact checkers? Everywhere you turn, on social media, for instance, there are people that are making sure you don't stray into misinformation. But at the same time, these are the people with a straight face who would say, but uh, remember, there are 97 genders. In fact, they'll fact check you if you try to maintain otherwise. So I've got a couple of articles I'd like to share with you. This first one is a dandy. In fact, if you have been looking for a reason to maybe cut back on your time on Facebook, here's a great one. This is from Thorstein Siglossen, writing for the Brownstone Institute. Facebook works to deliver us from truth. He says, This morning a friend published a short post on Facebook, drawing attention to how it seemed to him the company was not even bothering anymore to refer to the so-called independent fact-checkers to justify their censorship. He had reposted a clip where Fox reporter Tucker Carlson discussed the negative effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccines, referring to peer-reviewed studies. And by the way, he, he links to the clip in his story. No reference to the 20-something undergrads at the censorship agencies. But uh, here's the label that pops up. Boom. Your post goes against our community standards on misinformation about vaccines. No one else can see your post. We have these standards because misinformation about vaccines can make some people feel unsafe on Facebook. Now, Thor Thorstein Siglason says, How on earth can peer-reviewed results constitute misinformation? The peer review process isn't perfect, it's far from it, but after all, it is the accepted standard. The first conclusion, therefore, is that the word misinformation does not refer to misinformation anymore. In fact, it simply refers to any information the censor wants suppressed. So the word has become meaningless. The action, then, is suppression of a certain kind of information. But what about the reason? The reason for suppressing uncomfortable information about COVID-19 vaccines is that seeing this information may make some people feel unsafe. What does that mean precisely? Well, there are two possibilities, at least, and he says, I'm only talking about those who believe in the narrative. The first is that people may feel unsafe seeing evidence that contradicts what they've been told by the authorities, the mainstream media, and social media giants, the safe and effective mantra. Watching Tucker Carlson's review of the evidence might make people feel 
unsafe, uncertain, skeptical toward propaganda, relentlessly pushed towards them. This is what happens when you discover you've been deceived by someone you trusted. You feel unsafe, for you don't know who to trust anymore. Secondly, he says, people may feel unsafe because their worldview is being threatened. While they still cling to it with all their might, they still believe the lies, they have no doubts, but discovering how some other people do not share their view of the world makes them frightened. Perhaps they've taken part in ostracizing others, ridiculing them, wishing them harm, fearing for themselves if the truth came out. Perhaps they suspect deep down that they are being deceived, but fear the consequences of the full of the full retaliate or realization rather. Interesting Freudian slip there, Bri. This, uh, they may even have been so thoroughly brainwashed that they actually believe young and healthy people in age group with a demonstrated COVID mortality rate on par with the flu will drop like flies in case they get infected. Like this unfortunate young woman willing to risk her life to protect her ill-advised belief. And there's a tweet here from a young woman named Georgia Clark who tweets, So I'm in the hospital after developing rare heart inflammation linked to Pfizer. And even with this side effect, I would get the jab again. Side effects can be treated. Dying from COVID-19 can't. The benefits far outweigh the risks. Notice the wording in Facebook's label. It doesn't say alleged misinformation will make people unsafe. It just says it will make them feel unsafe. When your view of the world is threatened, you may certainly feel unsafe, but it doesn't mean that you're any less safe than you were before. He says, if someone points out to you the bridge you cross every day and have been assured is well-built and robust is actually rusting away and may collapse any day, you may feel unsafe in the way you will doubt some other things you've been led to believe by the same people who assured you of the safety of the bridge. But avoiding that bridge will surely make you safer in the future. If you find out that a medication you've been led to believe is safe and effective actually isn't, you may feel unsafe in the same way. But avoiding that medication will surely make you safer in the future. Having to think may make you feel unsafe, but it will not make you unsafe. A true belief is the result of thinking. To arrive at the truth, we must have all the relevant information we can come by, evaluate it, and in the end, come to an informed conclusion. So it may not hold forever. New evidence may present itself. We may have to reconsider our conclusion. This is the essence of science, the prerequisite of progress, and also the prerequisite of making the best and safest decisions for ourselves. Thorstein Siglason says, Facebook's aim is not to make their, their users safe. Their aim is to make them feel they are safe, to prevent them from discovering challenging information, prevent them from thinking. They are the apostles of a new God, And his followers do not ask him to deliver them from evil. They ask him to deliver them from truth. That's powerful. That's actually one of the best commentaries I've seen all week. And and I guess it's, it's more ammunition for why we should absolutely question the fact checkers. I've said it before and I'm, I'm going to maintain, you know, you don't need a fact checker. You can be your own fact checker. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you become arrogant and puffed up with, yes, that's right, I do have all the answers, and, and no one should question me, and you get all defensive and fight people online because, you know, they don't believe what you're saying. It's more along the lines of you are comfortable with going after truth, even when truth sometimes leads you into some uncomfortable places. That's the nature of truth. But you learn how to think like an expert. 
Do you understand the difference between uh, I am an expert and I'm learning how to think like one? It's a matter of asking the right questions. It's a matter of fleshing out the picture and making sure you're looking at it from as many angles as possible so you can make an informed conclusion. And then the hardest part, at least for most people, is learning to trust your conclusions. To trust that, uh, hey, I have found something that doesn't align with what the mainstream believes. Do I go ahead and just, you know, stick with the crowd because that's safe and this is where everybody's kind of moving anyway, you know, toward the edge of the cliff? Or do I start walking in the other direction? Believe it or not, it takes courage to do that. After all, you're bucking the trend, right? You're out of step with the rest, what the rest of the people think. But here's the dirty little secret we're not supposed to consider. The masses are notoriously easy to lead by the nose. So if the masses are wrong, you're not safe in the masses. In fact, that's where the greatest danger can be found. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again to my sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. I have links to each of them on my own website, which is TheBrianHydeShow.com. You might even want to sign up to get my daily show notes. And I will uh, also send you my little short-form feature called Hide in Plain Sight. It may not be for everybody, but if you want to check it out, you know, just uh, feel free to send, to share your email with me. The subscribe button is right at the bottom of each day's show notes. So I want to kind of continue on the whole fact check thing. I, I got a burr under my saddle today about this, and I guess I need to kind of get this out. The so-called fact checkers, they are very, very busy, and this is true on, on every form of social media. Yes, even Twitter still has the fact checkers. Well, I better protect you. You know, you don't want to be misled. Well, Paul Craig Roberts has an excellent article published on LewRockwell.com today laying out the fact check scam and how it's really nothing more than censorship in a bright new wrapper. He says, last Monday, I received an email from NewsGuard, a, quote, independent organization that rates and reviews news outlets based on nine apolitical journalistic criteria. So he says, the analyst asked him to comment on two statements in his columns in which he's accused of advancing false and unsupported claims. One false and unsupported claim is a March 2022 article titled Ukraine Hosted Illegal U.S. Biowarfare Laboratories Repeated Russian and Chinese Propaganda About the Presence of U.S.-Run Bioweapons Labs in Ukraine Which Has Been Repeatedly Debunked By Fact-Checking Organizations And Refuted By U.S. Government Officials Now listen to his analysis here Paul Craig Roberts says the alleged fact-checkers claim that I made a false and unsupported claim is incorrect for two reasons. One is the fact that a Freedom of Information Act request to the Defense Threat Reduction Agency produced U.S. official U.S. government documents that state that the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a component of the U.S. Department of Defense, funded anthrax laboratory activities in a Ukrainian biolab in 2018. The U.S. government's records also show over $11 million in funding for the Ukraine Biolabs program in 2019. By the way, he links to this. He's not saying, take my word for it. Here's the link. But apparently it never occurred to the dumb fact checker that relying on assurances from a proven liar such as the U.S. government is no way to check a fact. How, fact checker, he asks, does the government refute its own admission? 
Notice also that the fact checker thinks that a statement by the Russian government is unsupported, but a statement by the U.S. government is considered supported. How does this obvious bias serve to verify any fact? He says the second reason the fact checker is incorrect indicates that the fact checker is incapable of understanding that to report what the Russian government claims to have discovered in Ukraine is not information, misinformation rather, or propaganda. It is correct information reporting Russian claims. What we see here is a fact checker who thinks or has been trained to see any report, whether or not endorsed by the reporter, of an item in the impermissible-to-be-mentioned category as a false and unsupported claim. In other words, all is false except official narratives. That's the key right there. Now, Paul Craig Roberts says, My other false and unsupported claim is that 100,000 vote spikes are indications of fraud, a conclusion endorsed by numerous experts. Now, the fact checker alleges that vote spikes are commonplace and due to the release of large batches of results all at once from solidly Democratic or Republican districts or from mailed ballots. Now, what the fact checker doesn't account for, though, is the extreme unlikeliness of a vote dump of 100,000 or more ballots that is all for one candidate or how votes were mailed in such a way that all Democrat votes arrived in the same delivery. Perhaps it's statistically probable for 100,000 votes to arrive in an unbroken stream, all for the same person, but the probability of such an event is far too low to account for the large number of times it throws a close election to a Democrat. Are there that many voting precincts in which not a single Republican voter lives? Republican vote spikes are rare and seem to happen when the algorithm of the voting machines has created an unbelievable margin of Democrat victory and has to be narrowed. So he says, in my opinion, fact checkers are unintelligent people devoid of integrity who are hired to support official narratives by stamping out truth and dissenting opinion. Who checks the fact checkers? There's no reason, he says, to trust a fact checker. Anyone can set up a fact check site to protect any material or ideological interest from examination. Note that the fact checkers appeared only after the official narratives became so blatantly false that they had to be protected from investigation or examination. Never before did we have an industry of censors employed to protect official narratives. Fact checkers are the true enemies of truth. I know that's harsh, but I also think it is right on the money. Now, I want to shift gears and and share a little bit of good news. I feel like I'm complaining a little bit. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm just venting here. But the best government, in my opinion, is the one that's closest to the people being governed. It's going to be the most responsive. And here's a good example from Oregon, where a newly passed gun control law is causing some sheriffs to draw a line and say, we're not going to enforce this law on our citizens. This is an article from Jack Phillips. I believe this was written for uh, Epic Times. He says, several sheriffs in Oregon say they will not enforce the state's new gun law that places a limit on magazine capacity, arguing that the provision violates the Constitution's Second Amendment. Oregon voters approved Measure 114, also known as the Reduction of Gun Violence Act, during the November 8th midterm elections. The rule, among other restrictions, outlaws magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, similar to rules that have been implemented in New York, California, and other Democrat-controlled states. But listen to this. Several county sheriffs have publicly announced that they won't enforce, enforce the law or parts of the law. The biggest thing this does 
The biggest thing, he says, is this does absolutely nothing to address the problem, says Sheriff Cody Bowen of Union County. That's what he told Fox News on Tuesday. The problem that we have is not magazine capacity. It's not background checks. It's a problem with mental health awareness. It's a problem with behavior health illness. Now, Bowen added that society as a whole is a bigger problem rather than saying that, you know, guns are killing people. Union County, which is sparsely populated, is located in northeastern Oregon near the Idaho border. Now, the sheriff said there's just no way for us to enforce that, nor would I, simply because it's an infringement on our Second Amendment, you know, our right to keep and bear arms, adding that it won't reduce shootings in the state. Malheur County Sheriff Brian Wolf stated he won't enforce the magazine limit. He told local media, I don't think this is superseding anything. I don't believe that I'm superseding state law by not enforcing it. Anybody in law enforcement, including the state police, including the governor, has to pick and choose what laws they're going to be able to enforce. Lynn County Sheriff Michelle Duncan wrote on November 9th in in a Facebook post that she wants to send a clear message to Lynn County residents that the Lynn County Sheriff's Office is not going to be enforcing magazine capacity limits. This measure is poorly written, and there's still a lot that needs to be sorted out regarding the permitting process. Who has to do the training, exactly what the training has to cover, writing that the measure should face an immediate lawsuit. According to an analysis of what counties voted on the gun control measure, check this out. Voters in only six Oregon counties out of 36 favored it. Now, the counties that had a majority of voters who voted in favor it were located in and around Portland, the state's largest city, the county that includes Eugene, the capital of Oregon, the county that includes the city of Corvallis, the home of Oregon State University, and Lincoln County, located on the coast. By the way, it is a pretty nasty law. And it's, it's intended to, I think it says, if you want to buy a gun, you have, to, uh, you have to have a permit in order to buy a gun. But they don't even have the permitting process completely in place at this time. I don't know what that means for, for Oregon residents other than, uh, yeah, we're trying to make it as hard as possible for you to buy a firearm, even though we don't know who you are, even though we have no proof that you are a danger or that you're a criminal or anything like that. This is just people who think guns are icky trying to enforce through democratic rule, right? Mob rule, 50% plus one, we get our way, that uh, you have no right to defend yourself. What a messed up way to look at the world. But thank goodness for sheriffs who understand, you know what? That's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my resources. I'm not going to enforce this. And I'm sure the residents of those counties are, are feeling pretty good. Now, the Oregon State Police... Sorry, guys, you don't exactly have the best record of, of uh, standing up for people's rights. You're more like, uh, you know, the enforcers of whatever the will of the state is, right or wrong. Sorry, I seem to have a bit of a grudge there, but they have Lavoie Finnicum's blood on their hands, and so they deserve whatever uh, nastiness comes to them. But thank goodness for those sheriffs. Now, my advice is if you live in a place that is prone to uh, wanting to pass gun control, your county sheriff may be an effective counter to such efforts. It's a concept called interposition. Sometimes states will interpose themselves between the federal government and their citizens to prevent, you know, official abuse or abuse of power from the federal level. In this case, you have sheriffs interposing themselves between the state and the citizens of their county. Why is this? Why does it matter? Well, because these sheriffs are elected by the people. They're accountable to the people. 
And it's good to see that there's some who still remember that their job is to help keep the people free. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, I got to warn you, I'm going to I'm going to stray into some territory that's going to make some people a little bit uncomfortable because I'm going to talk about wars and rumors of wars. And in particular, I want to talk about how a lying, manipulative media is apparently trying to do its very best to lie us into World War III. Uh, you know, you may think, well, Brian, you just have an axe to grind with the legacy media. I do. When you, when you get to reporting that is this reckless and unhinged, yeah, I do. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm never telling people, hey, you should trust what the media is telling you, right? They, they're really looking out for you. And if the government uh, folks were up to anything, you know, the media would be sure to tell us all about it. I think we know better now. I got a, this came in my email inbox yesterday from a substack that I follow uh, from Eugippius. And it's titled, The Press Are Completely Crazy and They Are Going to Get Us All Killed. Now, maybe you heard about this story a couple of days ago. A rocket exploded in the Polish village of, oh, good luck saying this, Przewodo. <laughs> I hope I'm saying it correctly. Nonetheless, two people died. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky immediately blamed Russia, later going so far as to characterize the alleged attack as a message from Putin to the G20 summit. Then the Associated Press reported that they had heard from a senior U.S. intelligence official claiming that Russian missiles were responsible for the attack. And thereafter, the worst journalist, I'm sorry, the worst German journalistic actors embarked upon an evening of dark speculation about the proper NATO response to a Russian attack on Poland. Higher brow outlets like ZDF merely ran inflammatory headlines about Russian rockets with the crucial information that the rockets were Russian-made, while their immediate origins were unclear, buried in the body of the piece. Build, on the other hand, went all in with this incredible rant from Chief Editor Johannes Boy, quote, The Russian army has bombed Poland, the AP news agency reports, citing a U.S. intelligence official. Two people are dead, murdered. Accidental or not, this is an armed attack on NATO territory. The two most likely possibilities are, first, that Putin's soldiers hit Poland by mistake. They are often poorly trained and drunk. In this case, the tyrant must apologize formally, beg for forgiveness on bended knees, so to speak, while armed NATO fighter jets fly around his country. He is not used to that. When his troops shot down a passenger plane in 2014, killing 298 people, there were no consequences. Or alternatively, Putin attacked NATO on purpose. In this case, the alliance must hit back hard because NATO cannot simply let its territory be bombed or let its citizens die in a hail of Russian bombs. Putin will only respond to force. And should the unlikely third possibility be true that the explosion was the result of Ukrainian air defense, then indeed, the Russians are also to blame for they are playing with fire on the NATO border. The mad tyrant is bringing us ever closer to World War III. Holy cow. End quote, by the way. And then Eugippius writes, This morning, Boy's paper carried a front-page headline screaming, Putin fires rockets at Poland. So now that both Poland and the Americans have clarified 
that the explosion was likely caused by a stray Ukrainian air defense missile. The story has disappeared entirely from the top of build.de. I guess they're not so interested in exacting, extracting apologies from a kneeling Zelensky. Meanwhile, that other major Axel Springer organ, Welt, are running damage control pieces like this one from obvious mediocre, from obnoxious mediocrity, Clemens Verken, claiming that without Russia's war crimes, it never would, never would have come to the accident in Poland. Can you see where the press stops being, you know, a, a source of factual information and actually becomes a source of activism? And by the way, we have a great debt to whatever curious Polish farmer just happened to be there on scene where the missile landed and exploded, killing two people, and who started taking pictures. And those pictures clearly show it was a Ukrainian missile. Yes, Russian-made, but a Ukrainian missile. Thank you, Polish farmer, for saving us from World War III, at least for the moment. Now, Eugippius says there are a few observations to make about this little storm in a teacup. The first is that despite appearances, not all of the American government and not all of NATO have completely lost their minds. Scholz, Macron, and others called for caution and avoided open statements of blame. And today we've seen a clearly coordinated campaign to shift direct responsibility away from Russia. The second is that there are, however, plenty of powerful people in NATO and elsewhere who are indeed totally stratospherically crazy. These include very probably that anonymous senior intelligence official who spoke to the Associated Press and also a great part of the media who've made a habit out of printing reheated Ukrainian press releases as news and who've never quite recovered their senses since they lost them in the great corona panic. It must be fun to rage about the tyrannical evils of Russia and the democratic virtues of the NATO companies, most of which have spent the last three years denying their allegedly free citizens all manner of basic rights and freedoms. It's also incredibly, incredibly dangerous. A direct NATO attack on Russia would be a catastrophe for Europe. Maybe somebody should try to rein in the press and wean them from their crisis addiction before they happen upon another pretense to invoke Article 5. That's the one that says if one NATO member is attacked, we all fight back. There's no guarantee that the next one will be clarified so quickly. See, people dismiss, you know, any claim of, well, is that a false flag? As well, that's just conspiracy theory stuff. But false flags have had a very long and proud history of getting nations involved in wars. Think about the Gulf of Tonkin incident in which allegedly North Vietnamese naval vessels fired on American naval vessels. It didn't happen. But America still found itself embroiled in war in Southeast Asia. Think about the, uh, the idea that, uh, well, you know, there's, there's uh, weapons of mass destruction, or Saddam Hussein is somehow in league with the 9-11 hijackers. Do you remember the run-up to the Iraq War, the second one around? That was, uh, that was largely the product of a press that was just not willing to question the establishment. They just repeated whatever the establishment was saying. And in this case, it was a Republican establishment. But it just goes to show you there's really not that much difference when you get to that imperial level. The neoconservatives in the Bush administration, they were going to have a war with Russia. The, the project for a new American century had been sitting there since at least 1998. They'd been trying to persuade Bill Clinton, hey, you need to go in and invade Iraq and depose Saddam Hussein and put somebody in there who's our guy. 
They didn't have an excuse. They didn't have the emotional leverage to make that happen until 9-11 took place. And then it was like, okay, people are frightened. People are angry. They're looking for some kind of scapegoat. Saddam Hussein, you know, was the most obvious target. Now, you understand, of course, I'm not trying to make the case that, oh, he was a great guy. And really, you know, he wasn't that bad. It wasn't like he was, you know, he was a monster or anything. No, he was pretty monstrous, especially to his own people. But again, none of this changes the fact that Iraq never materially harmed the United States. And yet, uh, by 2002, you know, it was very clear with all the buildup that we had going on in Saudi Arabia and in Kuwait. Yep, we're going to invade Iraq again. It's going to happen. Nothing was going to change it. Why? Because he might have weapons of mass destruction. And every time Saddam was told, you prove you don't have them. Prove the negative. Prove it. You know, he would try to show, look, I don't have what you say that I have. And the goalposts would move. It was a foregone conclusion. It was clear. We're going to have this war and this is going to happen. And I I get that same kind of vibe from the way that uh, the, the whole Russia and Ukraine and NATO scenario is playing out. And it's crazy. I mean, look, I... I know I'm probably rubbing some people the wrong way, and I, I guess that's just the chance I have to take. But even even good friends who are, you know, I think informed, clear-thinking individuals still have that, uh, that knee-jerk reaction to, well, if you're not saying something that's 100% in support of Ukraine, then obviously you've been brainwashed with Russian propaganda. And what I'm suggesting is, what if there really are no good guys in this? I mean, I don't want to sound too subversive here, but based on what happened in Ukraine in 2014, in which there was a new president installed, an old one deposed, thanks to U.S. intervention in the Orange Revolution, the tension ramped up in those eastern uh, provinces, particularly Donetsk and Luhansk, and there's one more, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. But, uh, you know, that, that tension had been going on for some time. And over the last few years, Russia and Ukraine have increasingly had friction. I guess what I'm saying is, it's not as innocent. It's not like, well, one day Putin just woke up and twisted off and decided, I'm going to go invade my neighbor. Strategically, he gave reasons why he was going to protect the Russian-speaking people there in the eastern Ukrainian provinces, or the breakaway provinces. But my bigger point is that's really none of our business. And yet the press and NATO and certain government officials are doing everything they can to make it our business, even if it results in World War III. That is messed up. This is The Brian Hyde Show.